0: Hey podcast listeners, this is Darren with a quick note about this week's episodes. Um, As you may know by the title, this week we hosted a guest lecturer from Denver Seminary. His name is Dr. Richard Hess, and there was so much good stuff to talk about that we've decided to split it up into two episodes, so this is just part one. Um, Dr. Hess also prepared a PowerPoint to accompany his lecture, so if you have time it would be worth it to head over to our, our YouTube channel and see the video of this podcast. There's a link in the description, or you can just search on YouTube Forefront Church at Harvey Park and find it there. Thanks so much for listening, and without further ado, here we go.
1: You are listening to More to the Story, a weekly podcast featuring Pastor Drew Tarwater and Pastor Darren Inns of Forefront Church in Denver, Colorado. Each week, More to the Story podcast will follow the Forefront Church Sunday Sermon as Pastor Drew and Pastor Darren guide you through the Bible from Genesis through Revelation. Every podcast will feature in-depth analysis of the sermon and answer questions about the Bible.
2: Now, here is More to the Story. Welcome to the Forefront Church Podcast. Today, the lead pastor is away, so Darren and I are unsupervised darren how are you doing today
0: hey i'm doing pretty good excited about today's podcast
2: absolutely me as well we have a very special guest with us this week uh we have distinguished professor of old testament and semitic languages at denver seminary dr richard Hess. dr hess how are you doing today very well thank you darren how do you know dr hess
0: Yeah, so Dr. Hess is a professor, as we said, at Denver Seminary. I've taken a couple classes from him, and the thing about Dr. Hess is that you just need to come with either your Word document open or your pen and paper and just be ready to take notes. He's brilliant, very smart, well-known in the scholarly world about all things in ancient Israel. So I'm really excited to have him here on the podcast today and give some context to the sermons that we've been talking about in church.
2: No, ex- extremely excited, Doctor Hess. What did we? I mean, the bio. Your background's amazing. It makes me feel really like I've been failing at life when I read your bio of all the stuff you've accomplished and the stuff I've accomplished. So, give us a quick summary. What what are what are some of the uh, benchmarks that you're really proud of that you've accomplished?
3: Well, I guess that I'm a Christian, and uh, I'm a husband and father, uh, and. We have three adult children, all who are married, and nine grand- <clears throat> nine grandchildren. Congratulations! So yeah, two of our uh, children and their families live here in the area, and one lives in Michigan as a worship pastor there. So that's probably the the most precious thing that uh, cool. I can think of. Uh, we also, my wife and I. My wife is Scottish, and uh, so we co-pastor a Celtic Christian church here in the area. And uh, while I'm speaking of her, she's also the chieftain of the St. Andrew's Society of Colorado, and they will be the uh, annual festival that we have in two weekends, I think it is, yeah, at Edgewater, besides Sloan Lake. So if you're in the area and want to get some Scottish culture, that's a good place to go. <laughs> so so what's and, the uh, what's
2: the big difference between like a Celtic church and a not like a non-denominational yeah. church? What would, what would be the well, big differences?
3: Not a not a huge amount, but we do appreciate uh, some of the values of uh, of Celtic Christianity, which is an ancient Christianity. Most people think of St Patrick or Patrick uh, when they think of that and his evangelism of Ireland and the great things that he's done. I would say a lot of it's based upon some of the same similar themes as, as in regular Christianity, if you want to use that term, but uh, with a greater emphasis, things like fellowship, uh, evangelism, community, uh, values like this. Of course, there's the special Celtic artwork, the special uh, expressions of uh, liturgical forms, the, the famous breastplate of St. Patrick where you... You get that, those lines, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ above me, Christ below me. Uh, just this sense of walking with the Savior, walking with the Lord day by day, moment by moment, beginning each act to beginning each activity with prayer, with a prayer dedicated to how we're going to go about doing that. So a little bit of, uh, of a different uh, emphasis here and there, and
2: uh, we really appreciate that. No, that's really interesting, though. You've also uh, authored a number of books, including yeah, yeah. editing the NIV Bible, or being a contributor. Right. I don't know if you can be a contributor is the right word for the NIV when you're talking about the Bible.
3: <laughs> well, yeah, there, there, there are two things there. One is the NIV Biblical Theology Study Bible, which is a study Bible which uh, I helped to edit. We have uh, major contributors of of experts in all the different books of the Bible who have contributed notes to that study Bible, so it's a little bit of a step up, the NIV uh, Biblical Theology Study Bible. And then I also serve on the uh, Committee for Bible Translation for the NIV, the New International Version, Uh, and and that version is the largest selling English version in the world uh, in terms of its overall sales. And uh, it is, I think, a very good translation. So we meet every every uh, not every week, every every year, for a week. And uh, usually in the summer, we met this past uh, end of June in uh, in Washington, d c. And there are fifteen of us on the translation committee from around the world. and we discuss uh, proposals and other things, preparing kind of a collection and uh, stylistic changes and whatnot in preparation for probably a new release of the NIV in five or ten years to bring it up to date with modern language and also with some discoveries and other things that have been made with regards to how to translate. There's nothing major in the sense that it changes the, the, the fundamental message of the word, but it does make it, I, we hope, easier to read and a bit more accurate. The last tra- translation edition came out in 2011. And so uh, we'll have another one here in a little bit.
2: No, that's amazing to think about with all the work that goes into translating that and making it more accurate. What are some of the big hurdles you guys face in those translations? Like what when you're trying to make it more, like more accurate from language that we used even just 10 years ago to what will be released here in about five years.
3: Yeah, those are good questions. And I think, uh, every every time we meet there's there's something somewhat uh, different or new but I would say uh, style and and how style is used and how one describes it of course about 10 or 20 years ago one of the more big issues was gender inclusive language uh, not that one changes the gender of God God is still he uh, throughout the Old Testament and New Testament but, Uh, Certainly in terms of how one describes people, uh, instead of saying brothers, you might say brothers and sisters because you want to be inclusive. And what once was understood as brothers and sisters now uh, requires that to be explicitly said. So uh, things like that, I think, become important with regards to style. Also trying to make it clear where we have, for example, poetry in the Bible, where we don't have poetry, but we have just prose, the regular uh, narrative or descriptions, and uh, providing a means of making that easier. Uh, the NIV also is in charge, the committee in charge of the, if, if you do have an NIV Bible, you'll see little, uh, not, uh, not study notes, that's for a study Bible, but uh, small uh, blurb's at the beginning of each pa- of each section. Not a blurb, even. It's just a word or two heading that headings, and so oh, we yeah. do that. And we also do the some of the notes for the text at the bottom. there are tiny little notes at the bottom, which uh, we discuss too, because sometimes it's very hard to decide whether a phrase or word would be better translated this way or that way. And so you put the one that's preferred by more in the main translation. But you also recognize that there's another way to look at it, and that goes in the footnote.
0: So I I have an example of of a translation interpretation that just came up in my most recent Bible study. There's a difference between the NIV and then what the ESV and NASB have, and it's in 1 Samuel 6, uh, verse 19. Mm. It's talking about um, God uh, striking down some, some people in Beth Shemesh. Where they looked into the ark, and and this means they kind of gazed lustfully at at the ark. They shouldn't have really been looking at at, at it this way. Plus, it was just out in the open, and the ark belongs—the ark of God—behind belongs in the tabernacle. Um, But the NIV says that seventy people perished, but the NASB and the ESV, I'm quite certain, uh, puts fifty thousand and seventy people to death and um, uh, no. there's there's some differences in the Hebrew of whether or not the 50,000 should even be in the text, and so maybe, Dr. Tess oh. you can speak to that, but it is, like, putting 50,000, 70 people to death is quite different than putting 70 people to death. Um, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. yeah, the NIV says just 70.
3: Yes, and I suspect that's uh, a note here. I was just looking at the, the NIV, and... Uh, trying to see if there's any uh, notes on that. Yeah, a few a few Hebrew manuscripts, I believe, do delete that section, if that's correct here. So I suspect that what you have is uh, some discussion even in the ancient times of the copyists, of copying the Hebrew, uh, whether that was actually part of it or not. But um, I suspect that, that's, that that was felt not to be the most accurate uh, translation, and And it may have
0: crept in. And I imagine Uh, that mm -hmm. 50,000 people in a town of Beth Shemesh would be quite a high number.
3: No, yeah, I mean, if you're talking about actually 50,000, that would be uh, probably almost all of the population of Israel at this time. So I doubt that uh, that's that's a realistic number in terms of what we know uh, and certainly a, a village, we would consider it a village today if we saw Beth Shemesh, but in those days it would be more of a city or ta- or fortified town uh, because of its strategic location, and that still would probably only have, at best, in the hundreds and not in the thousands of uh, population. It would be very unusual for any towns in uh in Judah and Israel and that region, in the time of the judges, to have more than a couple of hundred people.
2: Speaking of Israel in that time frame, what was the gover- governmental structure of Israel during the, the time of the judges? Like, was there a central or decentralized government? How, how do the tribes relate to each other and all that?
3: Yeah, those are lots of interesting questions. Uh, how does a society work and everything? And uh, so, I did a little bit of uh, uh, playing with this, kind of tried to prepare a PowerPoint, and I just wanted to show you a few things to give you an idea of that what that world was like. I think you may be able to access a PDF, even if you don't see this uh, visual, but just hear it audio. So if you are able to access that PDF map, you'll see a map sitting in front of you of uh, Israel, and uh, if you look, you will probably can find, well... The the area on the left is of course the Mediterranean Sea, and then you have the sea coast. There is the line, and then you have what becomes first of all the the coastal plain, and then the low hill country, and then as you go east, you have the high hill country uh, or main hill country. That's where Jerusalem is. If you have your cursor, Rob, and can find Jerusalem there, or so. and yeah, there it is, and then. Immediately to the east of that, you go down to Jericho and the Dead Sea you see there, uh, the the Jordan River, which actually we're following the flow in reverse up to the Sea of Galilee. And above that, above the Sea of Galilee, north of that, you'll see Hotsor. And north of that, not on this map, which is probably not a good reason to choose this map, but nevertheless is a site called Dan. So I just wanted, if, if you could go to the next slide, please. So this is Dan. Dan's mentioned in Judges 18. I understand you're uh, discussing this. This is a site where the tribe of Dan, had been called Laish, conquered this. Today it's a park. You see, it's not terribly large, but in that day and age it would be considered one of significant size. It sits at the foothills of Mount Hermon and is well watered. It's just a wonderfully watered area. And the, the ancient Old Testament site is still there. You can see it but uh, it gives you an idea without any walls or fortification that we can see from this slide, but they, they were there at that time, and if you just move on to the next slide, and then uh, we, I pointed out Hatzor, north of the Sea of Galilee, and then, but let's go back down to Jerusalem, and let's go over southwest of Jerusalem, can you see Lachish, it's uh, about halfway between Jerusalem. Yes, right there it is. So Lachish guarded one of the main passes up to Jerusalem. And in Canaanite times, in the times of the judges, if you could move to the next slide, please. Yeah, this is Lachish, or Lachish, as some call it. Uh, before, it's it's been excavated a lot more now. This is an old aerial view of it. But you can see the site. And again, you see some fields around there. see a few houses and things. Uh, up above it and to the right, just to give you modern houses, that is, just to give you an idea of, of the size of this. It's not a huge size. These sites weren't, as I mentioned, probably a few hundred. And these sites are not Israelite at this time, except for Dan at the end of the book of Judges. But these sites are, in fact, Canaanite. This is not how the Israelites lived. This is how the Canaanites lived. They lived in fortified cities here and there, dotted throughout the countryside. And uh, if we could go to the next slide, real quick,
0: Doctor Hess, as you talk about city, yeah. our modern sensibility of the word city, like Denver, Houston, even somewhere I'm from, Wichita, yeah. is far, far different than an ancient Israelite. Like we we talked a little bit about Jericho, and and how small it really was. Like for the for the tribes to be able to march around it seven times in one day could not have been very big, correct?
3: No, yeah, it was at most a couple of acres in size. Yeah. We're not. <clears throat> That, I believe, actually was probably more of a fort than anything else, because the word for city in the Old Testament has a very flexible meaning. We think of a city, like you say, uh, Darren, as Denver or some such place, but it's it's not necessarily that at all in the Old Testament. In fact, that would not exist. It is a, a place that, in some cases, even tent encampments are called mm-hmm. by the same name, city. So... Here uh this is one more Canaanite site I wanted to show you. Could you go back a slide uh Rob and this is Shechem. So if you go right in the middle, right in the middle of, of there and you see Dothan there and yeah, there's Shechem right uh, south of Dothan. So uh Shechem lies right in the middle of the hill country to the north is Mount Ebal, to the south Mount Gerizim. The very important uh trade routes there, it's 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 very much on the central hill country path that goes north-south uh, at the watershed of that region, and then also east-west, there's a, the valley goes right through that. Hence the name Shechem itself means shoulder. It sits on the shoulder of, of the valley and uh, mountains there. So if you want to go to the next slide now, we'll go back to that. This is ancient Shechem. This goes back even before the Israelites arrived. But again, it is Canaanite, and it was Canaanite for much of the time in the book of Judges. And uh, What we're looking at here is not the whole city. This is actually the uh, temple in the middle of the city, uh, the center for, for worship of probably Elberit, the god who's mentioned in Judges uh, 9 and, and uh, thereabouts. And this temple and 10 and 11. This temple, I think, is is important just to be aware of because it may well have been... Now, of course, it's not the whole thing. It, it was raised much higher than this with walls and everything and a standing stone there in the middle, which is probably one of the objects that was worshipped and found in the excavations here. But I wanted to show you these Canaanite sites because uh, we're, we're, we're going to move now more to Israelite. We think of the cities, but they were really controlled a lot by Canaanite. And if we go to Israelite... the First thing I want to look at is um, this uh, little site here on Mount Ebal, just to the north of Shechem. You saw Shechem there. This is a site that was that uh, was uh, discovered and excavated by uh, uh, archaeologist, the late Adam Zertal, when Israel took over this whole region in the Six-Day War in 1968, and at that time, They examined all of Mount Ebal. It's the largest mountain in the area. In fact, today there's an Israeli communications uh, military base on top of Mount Ebal. But this is on the third highest site. This is the only occupied uh, part of Mount Ebal they found. And what this seems to be is, we call it a cult center, a religious center, and it may well be an altar. It was an altar that was much more simple uh, between 12, roughly the late 13th century, 1230, 1240, and 1200 BC, and then around 1200 BC, it changed very peacefully, as far as we can tell, and it became much more structured and built, and you can see it here, if you want to move to the next slide, Um, uh, yeah, this is a reconstruction of it, And it probably was an altar. It was probably used for sacrifice. It's not like any of the Canaanite sites. It's out by itself. There's no special figurines or other things around it. And so uh, some have suggested this may be the altar or something very much like it. Mentioned in Joshua chapter 8 verses 30 to 35 that Joshua uh, built on Mount Ebal and sacrificed before the Lord uh, as, as the people were worshipping him, and he renewed the covenant. So this is one of the few sites that's very difficult to identify as a Canaanite religious site, but is very likely one of the very few religious sites, uh, and you see it's right here in this central hill country. Let's go on now to, to the next, uh, next slide, please, and move on beyond that, uh, if I could. Yeah. This is east of that site. A few miles was another place found that was a religious place. And what they found there was a little circle of stones marking it off, which you get sometimes. A standing stone such as you have, you remember, standing stones were set up by Moses. They were set up by Jacob at Bethel. They were set up by Joshua when they crossed the Red. the, see, the, the, the Jordan River. Uh, so there's standing stone there. And then there's this little guy. He's about this high and he's a a bronze bull, and probably, he's not a toy, that's for sure, but he's probably representing a deity, maybe the god Baal, or Ale, or even even the god uh, of Israel, Yahweh, because we know that people worship different things in different ways, not everybody worshiped the one God alone, and without images, such as the Ten Commandments said you should
0: do. So, Doctor, I have a couple be- follow-up questions about this. This image here, this bronze bowl. Yeah. Um, in in First Kings twenty-five, I think it is. Um, or sorry, First Kings twelve. Um, no, I'm I'm backwards. Somewhere in Kings, uh, uh, Jeroboam, who is one of Solomon's sons, when when Israel separated from Southern Judah, they set up two places of worship. One of them was at Shechem. And and they set up some uh, some golden calves, um, and if mm-hmm. talking talking about size, I remember like I, I had a children's Bible where these golden calves were like towering figures made out of oh, gold. Yeah. But but these yeah. are like, you you said this thing is not more than like a foot tall. W- what sizes were well, most yeah, of these
3: Well, yeah, tall. You could see it. You know, it's, yeah. Oh no. Well, first of all, uh, in theory, it's possible. We're not told how large these these ca- these calves were. So They could be really large, but we do have the site at Dan, we actually have the high place there, and the site where that was actually set up. And it certainly would accommodate a larger figure, but you could also, and as far as we know what we're seeing, the images were often not that huge. They were more of a manageable size, and especially if they're covered with gold, which is presumably what the term gold calf means then that would reflect something. I want you to notice something, though, about this. This is not a calf. This is a bull, hence the horns. Horns. Uh, A bull is an older figure and probably is meant to represent maybe a senior god. A calf is a younger figure and not necessarily representing a junior god, but certainly could represent a more active, let's say, god, a more military or, or figure like that. And so the calf becomes an image that is used. You, of course, have it at Bethel and at Dan, and as you mentioned in 1 Kings 12. Uh, but it is a slightly different figure and, and symbolic of different things than this bull. This bull also is in the shape and form of what are called the Zebu style, which is known from Syria and elsewhere at this time. So it may reflect uh, an influence of religion from that area, even as we have a number of peoples coming down into uh, Israel at, uh, in the time of the Judges. Remember all those Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, uh, all those different figures and groups. Uh, many of them, uh, maybe all of them, came from the north, and so we have uh, evidence of that influence as well. Anyway, just some comments there.
1: You have been listening to More to the Story, a weekly podcast featuring Pastor Drew Tarwater and Pastor Darren Ends of Forefront Church in Denver, Colorado. Each week, More to the Story podcast will follow the Forefront Church Sunday Sermon as Pastor Drew and Pastor Darren guide you through the Bible from Genesis through Revelation. Every podcast will feature in-depth analysis of the sermon and answer questions about the Bible. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another edition of More to the Story.